0: Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to start there this morning, but John chapter 11, this is the, the context is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We would call this much different than a resurrection. Uh, it's more of a resuscitation because everybody that Jesus raised from the dead uh, was destined to die again. Uh, so Jesus is unique in the resurrection in that once He was raised, He is alive forevermore. Uh, while He raised others from the dead, death was not defeated yet. So death still has dominion. But when Jesus raises, He raises and death is also defeated. And so never to have to, to pass from, uh, uh, through death again. So Jesus is a little later than they expected. See, the custom was, according to the Jews, that after three days... That's when the spirit was actually separated from the body. And so Jesus waited until day four to go and speak the release to Lazarus. If you've ever wondered why Jesus seemed to be a little late, he wanted to leave no doubt that he had the words that would defeat death. And later, he's going to have the action to defeat death ultimately. But this is what Jesus says to Martha in... John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. powerful statement. You know, as we watch Jesus in His life, we see the example how to live. We watch His morality. We watch how He interacts with people we watch how he loves how he forgives how he engages we watch who he's not afraid of and what he's not afraid to say and we see the authority when he speaks and we see him speaking to to the wind and he is able to 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 speak to uh uh, to all of creation in a in a way that is so powerful in fact it says that they were amazed at the authority of his teaching we watch how he deals with prostitutes and how he deals with adulterers and we watch how he deals with the you know the the uh, the religious people of his day and this is in comparison so as we see the example we see from the very beginning how god intended humanity to actually live but because of the sin nature in us we can't possibly Keep up with the life of Christ. And so we see the model, we see the example, but all it does is reveal to us our own personal failures. So the Ten Commandments were really never given for us to keep. The Ten Commandments were given to show us that we were not good. And to prove it over and over and over and over and over every day that we live. So while Jesus comes along and fulfills the law... He does not abolish the expectation of how God wants us to live. But if Jesus had only lived a sinless life, that's great, but it's insulting. Because there's no value to me to know that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus dealt with everything, every drama, every dilemma that we deal with, yet without compromise or sin. Jesus doesn't even have a sin nature due to the virgin birth. And so, because of this resume, this qualifies Him to die a substitutionary death for everyone who recognizes that their life is not put together. That they are not living the way God wants them to live. So many people want to become perfect before they follow God. God, but your imperfect life is proof that you should come to Him first because it's only when you are in Christ can you ever experience what it is that you're looking for. So, you realize for those who think that they're going to try to map it out or to get as good as you can before you become a Christian that the prerequisite to grace is sin. So Jesus suffers under Pontius Pilate until he is completely and utterly dead. He suffered emotionally as a man when he's in the garden. He experiences anxiety, dread, abandonment, betrayal. He suffered physically as a man. His body was ripped to shreds. He was hit. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was pummeled. He was, on his head was put a crown of thorns. He was beaten with rods. His beard was plucked out. And finally, nails pierced him and he was crucified until he was dead. He also suffered spiritually. In the garden, when he was crying out and praying, he said, My God, my God, Let this cup pass from me, Father, but not my will but yours be done. And on the cross, He says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced suffering emotionally, physically, and spiritually. So Jesus died in every sphere of life. So there is not a sin that could be committed in body, mind, or spirit that Jesus Christ has not already paid the price for. Not a sin, but one. Only one sin that can be committed, that cannot be forgiven. And that is the sin of dying, having not trusted in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was prepared for burial by friends. He was placed in a tomb, but not just any tomb. Matthew 27 gives us some details that seem to be just details, but it's very, very important as we dig into it. It says it was a new tomb, one in which no man had ever been laid, and it was also cut out of rock. Many tombs in those days were either catacombs or holes in the ground or caves, but this one was actually hewn out of the rock. If you remember in the Old Testament, Jacob, who was the founder of Israel, his name actually was changed to Israel, the patriarch, he was honored and buried by his son Joseph. And so now here we have the Son of God, our founder, Jesus Christ, honorably buried by another Joseph, a rich man, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that says that the Messiah will eventually have as his place of entombment with the rich. Jesus wasn't laid in his own tomb, but in others. This tells us a lot about his humility. Nothing Jesus ever said, nothing Jesus ever did was for himself. It was always for others. Jesus even said, I don't even have a place to lay my head down at night. So of course he doesn't have a tomb. completely dependent upon someone else for those material things. Now, if you were to, now think, these are, again, just minor details, right? But if you think about Jesus being laid into a tomb where there are other corpses already, it would be really easy to go into that in 10, 15, 20 years when every corpse looks exactly the same. And not to be able to know, is this the one we laid Jesus? Where did this, now Jesus was laid over here in this little, no, no, I think Jesus was. Over here. So it's very important for us to know that there was nobody else laid in here and nobody else was ever laid in that tomb. Do you remember the story uh, in, in the Old Testament when Elisha, who had a double portion of the Holy Spirit of Elijah, when he dies, they lower him down into a mass grave where other bodies are already in. This was very customary. Don't be offended. But Elisha's dead body touches the body of another dead man. And Elisha's body is so powerful, this touching, you don't believe me, go back and read it, it's good. I can tell, I don't remember that story. Well, you should attend Sunday school, it's great. (laughs) Elisha's dead body touches the body of another dead man and boom, this other dead man comes back to life. Isn't that nuts? That's crazy stuff. So listen, it's very important that Jesus be in there all by himself because if Jesus comes back to life, you would say, what happened in there? We don't know because we're hidden from it. It's very important for us to know that nobody else was in there and nobody else had ever been in there. It's also important for us to know that this was a tomb hewn out of rock, which wasn't very common. Usually, again, hole in the ground, some kind of cave system, or some kind of catacombs. But there is no back door to this hewn out rock. There is no way that over the course of three days that the disciples could figure out through the backdoor caverns where they could come and steal the body of Jesus. These details are incredibly important for us to know that we got to see everything that's taken place. Nothing is hidden from our eyes. Jesus rises from His own power and there will be no misunderstanding. That brings us to the next portion of the Apostles' Creed. For those of you who uh, are here today and maybe be our, our guests or maybe haven't been here in a little while, we've been kind of working through the Apostles' Creed, which again, we do not preach creeds. We preach Jesus Christ and His Word. But the creed kind of encapsulates what we believe as a church to be the foundations, the fundamentals of our faith And so we're just working through the creed together, and we're trying to learn it. Some of you already know it, but we're trying to learn it as a church so that we can know what it is that we believe, and not only what we believe, but why we believe. So I know it's a little awkward, and it is Easter, but I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. And we're going to work through the creed together this morning, okay? If you're comfortable doing this, feel free to be a part. If you're not comfortable with it, do whatever feels comfortable for the next 30 seconds, okay? Uh, Just uh, recite it with me, okay? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So today we are descending to the dead. And on the third day... He rose again. The question would be what happened to Jesus' body between His death and His resurrection. There's a lot of period period of time. It goes on there from 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, which is where the Scripture says. And from 3 o'clock on, Jesus was then buried into this hewn-out rock of Joseph of Arimathea, who most likely was a relative of Jesus uh, as well. And so he's placed in the body, but done quite quickly because at 6 o'clock it begins the next day for the Jews. And so the next day is actually a double Sabbath because it's Passover weekend. And so no work can be done. So whatever preparation they do with the body of Jesus, they've got to do post-haste. So Joseph goes and asks Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate wants nothing to do with Jesus or any of Jesus' people, so please Give that body to Joseph, the only person in the crowd who wants to have anything to do with it. Very quickly, they prepare this body. They put it into the tomb. And they, the Bible says that Joseph rolled, had a stone rolled and the Jews actually marked it. We don't know exactly how they marked it, but they marked it so they could know the comings and goings. They actually put guards around the tomb so that no one would be capable of rolling the stone away and doing anything to the body positively or negatively. Jesus was definitely dead. And so from the time of 3 o'clock, which was actually His death, but maybe for an hour or so, we still have the visibility of Christ there in body form. But now He's put into the tomb maybe an hour or so before dusk. And then at dawn, or right around daylight, we know on Sunday morning, when the women, they left before daylight. When they got there, it's just barely daylight. And the tomb, the stone is already rolled away. So sometime between just before dusk on Friday and just right at dawn on Sunday, Jesus spends, I don't know, 25, 26 hours, parts of three days... In the tomb. Jesus said, it shouldn't surprise us, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Three days. So Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days. At least parts of three days. A little Friday, all day, the Sabbath, the day of rest. Which is very interesting, I think, that Jesus does all of His work on the day of rest. Because that work wasn't work. (laughs) And then whatever few moments it was on Sunday morning. So when we get to the creed and we say descended to the dead, some translations of the creed actually says descended into hell. There are lots of songs written about Jesus descending into hell. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about Jesus descending into hell. And so today, what I want to do, rather than focusing on just the cherry on top of the bursting forth of the grave, I want us to talk about what Jesus was actually accomplishing while we are waiting for the resurrection. Why couldn't Jesus just die and immediately come right back? Because there's some things that have to take place. So let's dig into that. I want to show you three passages of scripture. Before we get there, I also want you to notice that when the early Christians were composing the creed, I want you to notice that the first part of the creed was always in passive voice. Passive voice. It's very interesting in how it was translated in the original languages, in in Greek especially. But He was conceived. He was born. He was crucified. He was buried. He did suffer under Pontius Pilate. These verbs describe things that happened to Jesus or things that were done to Him by others. But when it comes to this very important thing, it changes to active voice. He descended into the dead. Whatever else it means, the creed makes it very clear that this did not happen to Him. He intently, he was very intentional about going into Himself. For the first time, He is able to do what was His ultimate purpose in coming to begin with. This did not happen to Him. He made it happen. He was not taken in death. He charged toward death. Let's look at Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. If you'll join me there. Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8. There are three passages of Scripture that I want to just make references to as we work our way through this. This is a a passage of Scripture that has a much greater context. Uh, the, The point of the passage is that there's nowhere we can go where we might be able to escape or get away from the very presence of God. So, Psalm 139 verse 7 says, "...where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence?" If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And I want you to notice the phrase Sheol. That's not a word that we use today because it is a Hebrew word. This is a transliteration. Some of your translations may actually go ahead and translate it into English and it uses the word hell. And it's, uh, it's appropriate, but it needs some explanation. The word Sheol is a Hebrew word, and it simply means the place of the dead. There are several words in Scripture that references this concept or identity. The words are, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word is Sheol, place of the dead. In the New Testament, and most of the time, in a lot of translations, it actually says hell. In the New Testament, where it says hell, it's two other words. One of those words is, anybody know the Greek word for hell? Hell. Hades, right? Hades is actually the Greek god. Hades is where it comes from, is the god of the... Anyway, so we won't get into that. So Hades is the place of the dead. And then the other word is Gehenna. It actually is where the garbage dump of all Jerusalem was located, just outside the city in the Hinnom Valley. And this was a place where they took all of their refuse, all of their trash, all of their death, And they piled it in this huge pile and it stayed on fire all the time. And if you were very close to it, it was constantly the stench of death. Burning, fire, terrible. And so it became to be known as the place of hell. It's where death lives. So often in the New Testament, the word Gehenna is translated hell. The word Hades is translated hell. In the Old Testament, Sheol translated hell. It all means the same thing. Hell is actually an English word. Now, the reason that I say that is most of the time in our understanding of hell, we think of this place where the unrighteous go and live forever separated from God. But in the Old Testament, it says that even if you go into hell, you are there, O Lord. If I go into the place of the dead, you are there. There is nowhere I can go to escape your presence. But I want you to remember something that often we forget. Hell is not... The eternal place of torment. It's very important. So, whoa, wait a minute. Hell in the book of Revelation says that hell itself will be thrown into anybody? The lake of fire. The lake of fire is the eternal place of torment, not hell itself. So, I want us to jump into a New Testament story that Jesus tells. I think it was a, a true story, I think Jesus uses it as an illustration. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is found in the book of Luke. Jesus is talking about this, this poor man who lived kind of camped outside of uh, a rich man's home. And they both die. One goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, which is a place of waiting, of joy. Uh, uh, well, well, it's compared to where the rich man goes, which is called the place of Torment. But now, I want you to understand very closely, this is pre-resurrection. Jesus has not resurrected yet. So when we talk about hell, there's two compartments. There is the place of torment hell. There is the Abraham's bosom hell. Abraham's bosom is the place that Jesus was referencing to the thief on the cross. Also pre-resurrection, when Jesus said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise, Abraham's bosom the place of the dead that's for the righteous but there's a place of the dead for the unrighteous So it's very important but again pre-resurrection doctrines here so hell itself is a place where all of the dead from all time go unrighteous here the righteous here and there, as Jesus says, is a great gulf fixed between the two places. So when Jesus descends into the lower parts of the, lowest parts of the earth, that's here. But he descended even further into the place of the dead, and he does this when he says the first th- the last thing he says on earth, it is finished. I think it's the first thing that he says when he enters into. The place of the dead. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So Psalm 139 assures us of God's omnipresence. Wherever we go, Jesus Christ is already there. No part of the universe, no matter how low, no matter how dark, how distant, He is always present. The second passage of Scripture is Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul said this to the church at Colossae. He said, in referencing Jesus, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now the phrase rulers and authorities refers to spiritual forces of wickedness, not to human authorities. By his bloody death on the cross, Jesus triumphed over Satan. If we get, if you go back to Genesis chapter three fifteen, the promise was that the serpent would bruise the seed of woman. The Messiah would bruise his heel, but his foot would crush the head of the serpent. Right? That's what Jesus is doing right here, is crushing the head of the serpent. When Jesus said, "It is finished." I think He went and just, you know, how you just kind of do that. I think that's what He does. The cross was a decisive victory for the Son of God. Now, if someone, I don't mean to create drama, but if someone were to approach you with a gun and it's pointed at you or a knife and it's facing you, they are armed and dangerous, right? So to disarm, whether it's then or whether it's now, it simply means to take the weapons away. So when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that very moment when He left this world spiritually, He entered into the world of the the dead, those who had already passed away. Why did He leave here? To disarm He took every weapon that the enemy had formed against us, and they will not prosper because they are locked up in the safe of the Son of God. Disarmed. Satan has nothing more than a boo. All he can do is jump out from behind a tree. That's all he's got. With his hands that used to have weapons, he has no weapons because the cross of Jesus Christ disarmed. Every weapon that could be formed against you. Disarmed. I don't know why in the world we're so afraid of of Satan. So when Jesus dies, something very stupendous happens in the spiritual realm. That's invisible to everybody on earth. That's why they, they don't know what's really going on. You remember the I mean, as soon as Jesus died, earth felt it. There was an earthquake, right? And even the, the, the soldier who was there at the cross said, Whoo, there's something different about this guy. Surely this is the Son of God. I mean, this was powerful. But the world did not know what was going on, but the spiritual world did. You know, the spiritual world knew what was going on because Jesus took, as prisoners of war, Satan and all of his minions and paraded them past this side of the dead. And showed them all, there's no more weapons. Jeez, I love it. I, I don't think that Jesus was sarcastic. I do not think that He was a smart aleck. But do you know when you, give, when you tell someone something and they don't listen, and then what you told them comes to pass, and, and you say, well, I don't want to say I told you so. Listen, I have found that it's even better when they know that you told them so, but you don't have to tell them you told them so. You just kind of look at them. They know it. It puts them to open shame. And I think when Jesus takes that step there, and He takes the weapons from all of Satan and all of His forces, He puts him to open shame. I told you. I told you. I think... I think all of hell rejoiced at the death of Jesus Christ. The place of torment rejoiced. Satan rejoiced until his weapons were taken away. And he realized he had nothing left. So for those of you who often are feeling anxious, you feel defeated, you feel worried, you're scared to death that Satan's going to do something to you, you need to remember something. When you trust the finished work of Jesus Christ, He has nothing in His hands except boo. Charles Hayden Spurgeon, that great preacher from the late 1800s in London, he tells the story of one night, uh, he, he kind of woke up a, from, from his sleep and his bed was shaken. He thought, what is going on? My bed is shaken, there must be a storm outside. And so it's, it happens again. And he thinks, man, that's a severe storm. He hasn't opened his eyes yet. He says, and, and then, I mean, it shakes so hard he hears it. And he opens his eyes to see what kind of storm is outside of his window. And as he opens his eyes, he said, Satan is standing at the foot of his bed, shaking his bed. And he said, oh, it's only you. And rolled over and went back to sleep. Remember that next time you're worried or doubt. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 and 19 Listen you need to realize that that time between the crucifixion and the resurrection takes the sting out of death for you I think when you, while you while you're turning to 1 Peter I, I just picture Jesus all of the righteous they're captive in this place waiting for the atoning of their sin all of the unrighteous have abandoned all hope they're empty But both of them are stuck. Waiting. And I think the amazing thing to Satan and all his demons is the freedom that Jesus has in this place. He's able to walk. This hell and death has zero power over him. That's who we've placed our hope in. His crucifixion gave him the victory. But his time there gives us certainty that just as it is true for Jesus, His death is my death. Sin and now death and now hell itself has no power for those who call themselves by the name of Jesus. No power. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins... The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, Jesus is dead physically. His body remains on earth, is being taken care of and laid in the tomb. But he is still alive spiritually, and that will be the same case for us. As well, while we wait for our ultimate resurrection. Then Peter says that Christ went and He preached to the spirits in prison. These are perhaps those who had believed in God's promises, but were waiting for their sin to be atoned for. So I don't mean to imply that Jesus goes into the place of torment and goes, Nah, 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 Jesus goes to the place of the righteous and the last thing He says on earth is, it is finished. It's the first thing that He says in the place of paradise. All the Old Testament saints, it is finished. You are free to go to be with the Father. Free to go to the Father. Jesus empties out paradise so that they can be present with the Father. But the place of torment still remains awaiting ultimate judgment where it will be thrown into the lake. A fire. So Jesus is declaring defeat to the devil, all of his demons, and all of those who have rejected him on earth. He keeps them in their place. Now there's a couple things that this does not mean. And I want to clarify this very quickly, lest error creep into our belief system. This does not mean that Jesus went into hell and offered salvation to those who were already dead. There is nothing in Scripture that supports the notion that Jesus went and preached salvation to them. There is no such thing as a post-mortem salvation. Paul said, now is the time, the day of salvation. Today is the day when we must trust Christ as our Savior. Man is appointed once to die and after that we face judgment. So judgment is the only thing that can come after death. That is why, while we are still breathing, that is the time. I hear people say all the time, I know that Jesus is true. I know that the stories are true. And one day I will make a decision to follow Jesus. Or, there's lots of, because it's so convenient. After I die, we know that Jesus went and preached down to hell and He'll do that again. I'll go to hell and I have one more chance to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Absolutely, absolutely too late. There are no mission trips to hell. Now, today, once a person dies, they only go to the place of torment. Paul said, now we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's speaking to Christians. There is no waiting place anymore. And the proof that we have is the resurrection that Jesus Christ's crucifixion, was enough. God the Father was satisfied with that payment. The resurrection is the proof of that satisfaction. And now we are ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord. This is why heaven rejoices at the death of the saints. Jesus also did not go to hell to suffer I hear people talk about that. I see plays about that. I see songs written about that. Listen, Jesus does not suffer in hell. The the understanding is, well, if Jesus went to hell, and hell is a place of torment, Jesus, because of my sin, Jesus went to hell and suffered for my sin. Listen, Jesus suffered on the cross for your sin, but when sin was atoned for, that was at His last breath. When Jesus went to hell, He was victorious already. Your sin was already covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. He's preaching victory to the prisoners who are in hell. He's not preaching salvation there. And He's certainly not experiencing uh, the the, uh, effects or the consequences of our sin while He is there. Jesus is victorious on earth and in earth. Jesus does all that on the cross so... The, the idea is, well, when I die, if I'm not right with God, you know, so this is where the idea of purgatory really came from, which is if people who don't receive Christ or they're not right with Christ, they go to hell, they suffer in proportion to their sin. And then once they've suffered enough to kind of alleviate the consequences, then they can be exported out of hell and into heaven. Listen, this is absolute blasphemy and heresy. It undoes every work that Jesus Christ accomplished on earth. It makes us being the payment of our sin. I don't care what you've done. Jesus Christ has already paid the price for your sin. If you do go to hell, it will be because you rejected Jesus not to pay the price for your sin. Jesus Christ has already paid every ounce of payment. Every consequence eternally has been summed up in Jesus Christ while He was on the cross. There's nothing left. The only reason you would go to hell is because you have rejected Him in this life. And you cannot undo this after your last breath. That's why it's eternal. Today is the day of salvation. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Jesus also went going to hell, but that did nothing to add anything to the cross. We saw it all. There's nothing left to speculate. When He said it is finished, the after party began. And, and as in accordance to all the other Scripture, first, the party, it begins in order, right? It's just the same way, the, some way the, the second coming. The dead in Christ will rise first, right? Well, guess what? The dead in Christ heard the message of the gospel first. The, the after party of the crucifixion started with the Old Testament saints. They were the first to know about it, and we got to know about it three days later. It's enough. It's finished. The grave heard it first, earth heard it Sunday morning. Christ fully experienced death, and that's the primary meaning of is if Jesus just swooned or if Jesus just passed out, there would be no... He descended to preach to the captives or led captivity captive or preached to the, to the dead there, the victory. In His death, He entered the human experience of dying as much as any person who had ever lived. He knows what death is all about. And it was by Him going to that place. If you remember in the book, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, they talk about... If he talks about Satan being cast from, from heaven and he has the, the keys to death and to hell. So for, for all of the Old Testament and all of Jesus' life, Satan is the powerhouse. He's the ruler. And he has the keys to death and to hell. And so when Jesus goes, he disarms Satan of everything. And when Jesus resurrects and earth finally knows it, Jesus has the keys in his hand. Death no longer has dominion. Hell no longer has dominion. Satan no longer has weapons. And we know this as proof the resurrection. So, Jesus defeated the devil. Well, Scripture says it in five ways. Number one, we already talked about Him... Crushing the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the works of the devil have been remedied in Jesus Christ. But listen, these are promises only for those who claim To put their faith in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who have allowed their sin to be paid by Christ. He's paid it whether you admit it or not, but when you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the works of Satan are complete. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, tells us those. And deliver all of those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He's talking about people who are apart from Christ, and we are destined both in this world and in the world to come. Lifelong slavery. We are slaves to Satan. We are slaves to sin. But Jesus put an end to that. In Colossians chapter two, verse fifteen. We already saw that hell itself is disarmed. At end of John sixteen, eleven, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's past tense by the way. present tense and then past tense. It's really interesting. Is, that's present tense, judged, past tense. So what does this mean to us? Well, to put it in first grade terms, we don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore. Now, I know we're afraid of death. Something we've never experienced before. We have a little bit of weirdness when it comes to experiencing things we've never experienced but listen, though the room be dark Jesus sits in it and says that he's already in there and it's safe to come in we don't have to be afraid of the dark anymore we don't have to be afraid of death anymore because we know even though we die physically we do not die spiritually how do we know that for sure? look at the empty tomb that's how we know for sure we also know that the work of salvation is absolutely complete. Listen, because Jesus died for us and took our punishment, we cannot go to hell. It's impossible. I'll say that as strongly as I possibly It is impossible for Christians to go to hell. Jesus made it impossible. But only for those who've trusted Christ as their Savior. There is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now listen, the Bible in First Peter, Peter says that that Satan is a like a lion roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour, right? But listen, what Jesus tells us is he's taken a picture of that lion, and if you zoom in real close, You will see that that lion has had all of his teeth pulled out. Every tooth is pulled. If his teeth are a weapon used against us, Jesus disarmed him by plucking every tooth. He cannot devour those who are trusting Jesus Christ. Listen to Martin Luther. Through Christ, hell has been torn to pieces and the devil's kingdom and power utterly destroyed so that it should no longer harm or overwhelm us. All of the enemies of Christ have been defeated. They remain on the battlefield, but the end has already been written. We know how the story ends. Jesus wins and we win with Him. And then He wrote a song. And I'm going to read the last stanza of that. This is Martin Luther. Martin Luther. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. What is that one little word? The name of Jesus the name of Jesus, he fought the fight. He stood his ground on the cross. He utterly defeated Satan and he proved it. He proved it all that death, hell, fear, the grave, none of these have any power over those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there's always been a lot of misunderstandings regarding the resurrection. But I want to explain to you very quickly how important the resurrection actually is and how powerful it is. Jesus, speaking of His own body and His life, just a week before His, his death, He told the, 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 uh, the religious leaders of His day, destroy this temple. He's talking about His own body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Right? Who will raise it up again? I will raise it up again. Who resurrected Jesus? Jesus says right here, if you try to destroy this temple, I will raise it up again. Right? Jesus raised Himself up. It's one thing for somebody to do something for a dead person. It's another thing for a dead person to do something for themselves. Man, that's some power right there, isn't it? I mean, that's power over death, the grave, hell, fear. That's taken every weapon out of the hand of the enemy. Jesus is God. And Jesus raised Himself. But in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, "...through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead." Wait a minute. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, he also said in Ephesians chapter 1, "...when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." Here's two different times. Paul says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said he would raise himself from the dead. But wait, there's more. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here, Paul tells the church at Rome that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus takes credit for raising Himself. The Father takes credit for raising His Son. And the Spirit takes credit for raising the Son. And then the Son put His Spirit who raised Him from the dead in you. And now you have resurrection power. But only if you trust the finished work of Jesus Christ. If not, you are not going to hell to pay for your sin except your sin of unbelief. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For those who still were not convinced that there was... These are church people who still was not convinced of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, useless, worthless, in vain, empty. And you are still in your sins. I hear people say, you know, even if the resurrection is not true, the cross of Jesus proves that we're forgiven. No, no, no. The cross of Jesus Christ proves we're forgiven, but the resurrection, without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. You hear me? Without the resurrection, the virgin birth is of no point. His sinless life is of no value. And the cross of Jesus Christ was all in vain. It is the resurrection... And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, that's a great word there, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. He goes on and comes to the end of verse 26 and says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I think of all of the religions of the world. It's only Christianity that has grace as its center point. Every other faith has man reaching to the heavens. But with Christianity, you have the heavens reaching down to man. And how do we know that the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ was enough? Because He resurrected. And the resurrection was the proof that He had won victory over hell, the death, and the grave. And He does that all on the day of rest. It reminds me of the last battle in Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, when all of the enemies of Satan uh, all the enemies of, of God are mounted together, and Satan is there with all of his minions. And there's this great—I mean, I mean—the the world for two thousand years have been mounting this last epic battle. And Jesus rides in on a white horse and just says one word, and all of the enemies are destroyed. Well, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of. Be still. So this morning, I think if we call roll, we say, Muhammad, here. Confucius, here. Moses, here. Jesus, Jesus. Has anybody seen Jesus? He is not here. He is risen, just like he said he would. And if he is risen, He will come again. So this morning, I want to encourage you that the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other belief system is the hope that we have in Christ's resurrection and the hope that we have for our own, that we will live forever with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning I just pray that Your Spirit would bring about a conviction that man can't bring. Lord, I pray that You would honor the reading of Your Word. I pray that You would speak powerfully. I pray that Your Your Holy Spirit that resides in us would confirm to us what we need to do that you would grant us repentance Lord I know that there are folks in this room that eternity makes us nervous because we don't know for sure I know there are some in here that have never made a decision to follow you oh we intend to we're hoping to But I pray, Lord, today that your convicting power would be so heavy that we would would make that decision. Today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for those who may, the spark may have, have gone and we forget what we have in you. We've made a decision to follow you, but we're not following at all. So, Lord, when you say that, Without the resurrection, life is useless. It seems to imply to me that because of the resurrection, that's where we find meaning. And Lord, we have sinned grossly because we look for meaning in every other thing. So, Lord, this morning I just ask that you would help us to to live for the resurrection, to look forward to our own. I pray that you would bring us to a place of repentance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.